Katie grew up here, and it is just so exciting and rewarding to see how she is obediently following the Lord to his call to serve him in different parts of the world. I, you know, I love our young people who are here. I love watching them grow up. I, I love watching them obey God's call on their life as well. So uh, when you see Katie, when she's home for a visit, I give her a pat on the back, as well as the rest of our young people who are who are following God's lead, which really is what this whole message is about this morning. We're in this series called Step Goal, Walking with Jesus Daily. And I'm really glad that you're here this morning as we continue this study. If you're worshiping with us online this morning, I'm thrilled to death that you're worshiping with us as well. We're going to talk about obediently walking with Jesus, which is exactly what Katie was talking about just a second ago. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, or your tablets, or your phone, or maybe you have... Philippians 2 memorized. Whatever it takes, we're going to follow along here in just a few moments. Can I ask you the question, does the word obedient make you a bit uncomfortable? Are you a rule breaker, a rule keeper, or a little bit of both? Fair enough. Probably most of us are a little bit of both, truth be known. Max, a first grader, was confronted by his dad, Todd, about well, his lack of obedience in listening. <clears throat> and listening. And this is sort of how that conversation went. Dad said, Max, why didn't you answer me when I called you? Well, I didn't hear you, Dad. What do you mean you didn't hear me? Max didn't answer. Max, how many times didn't you hear me? I don't know, Dad, maybe three or four. <laughs> I've often wondered how often our conversation with God would go something like that. Christian, how often didn't you hear me? I don't know, Lord. Probably a lot. You see, there's something about this matter of obedience. It is a challenging matter. And it often in our lives just doesn't matter enough. But if we're going to live a life that walks with Jesus daily, then obedience must matter because it mattered to Jesus and I'm thankful that the scripture points out his obedient nature and character. As a matter of fact, a few weeks ago, we, we talked about that event where Jesus got left behind in Jerusalem at the temple. That whole story ends in Luke 2, verse 51, when it says, And he, Jesus, went down to Nazareth with them, his parents, and was obedient to them. I love the fact that even at 12 years old, Jesus understood that his life's role was a unique one, that there was a special calling on his life of what he had come to do. But his first obligation to the Heavenly Father was to be obedient to his earthly parents. You see, they were the God-ordained authority in his life, and he obeyed them. We need to remember that we cannot walk as Jesus walked and dismiss the authority figures in our lives that God has placed there for our guidance and direction. And folks, I, I'm not convinced that as an infant, Jesus knew the plan. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us that he was totally, completely human. And I believe that. He had to be totally human to relate to us in order to be our Savior. But if he was totally human, then as an infant, as a toddler, as a small child, he would not have been able to comprehend exactly why he was here. At age 12, we are certainly given a glimpse that he was beginning to understand that. But even then, I think he had a lot more learning to go. It wasn't until he reached adulthood that the whole weight and responsibility of the plan of the ages rested upon his shoulders. 
You say, well, how can you know that? I mean, he was God in the flesh after all. Yeah, I know. He was God in the flesh. There, there is this there is this complexity. There is this mystery between him being fully human and fully God. And I can't explain that for you, but I can tell you what the Bible says. In Luke 2.52, it says, and Jesus grew in wisdom. It doesn't say Jesus came with all the wisdom he would ever need. It says Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in stature and favor with God and man, yes, but he grew in wisdom. God was teaching him. His parents were teaching him. He was learning in the synagogues. He was growing as he physically grew up. Jesus also validates this with his own words in John chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus said to his disciples, for I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Sounds like Jesus was learning from the Father, doesn't it? John 15, 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father I've made known to you. I, don't you get this impression that Jesus, as he's growing up, is learning and gaining and growing? He was obedient to God's call on his life. The Lord's baptism was also an act of obedience. When John objected to baptizing Jesus, Jesus said no. He compelled John to take him into the water and baptize him because he said it was the right thing to do. That's obedience. The right thing to do. His first miracle at the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, among many things, was an act of obedience to his mother's request. She said to the servants, you do whatever he tells you to do. But the greatest biblical picture of our Lord's obedience is most clearly spelled out in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, if you're there, begin with me in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who... Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, notice his wording. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, his thoughts should inspire our thoughts. His attitude should inspire our attitude. His actions should inspire our actions. His obedience should inspire our obedience. In other words, you could boil that down to these four words. Walk as Jesus walked. That's basically it. So if you and I are going to walk that way, it is going to involve the power of obedience. And this whole passage focuses on the obedient character and nature of Christ and how we ought to be a reflection of that. And the longer we serve him, the longer we worship him, the more we ought to look like him. If you get down the road many, many years in your Christian journey and you do not look like Jesus in your actions, thoughts, deeds, and obedience, then there's something wrong with the relationship. Family is supposed to look like family. 
There are some pictures of parents and children that are just, and, and the way they look, it's, it's just phenomenal, the comparison between them. We, we got a few of those pictures here. And if you look at these pictures, the person on the left, the picture on the left is the parent, or in one case, the grandparent, and the picture on the right is the son or the daughter. It's this picture up here in the right-hand corner. The black and white picture is actually the grandmother, and the one next to it is the granddaughter. Pretty amazing, isn't it, how that goes? You see, that, that's how we are supposed to be in the Christian life. We're supposed to have a resemblance to the Father. Then, of course, there are some kids that grow up and they bear absolutely no resemblance to the parents whatsoever, as this picture will point out to you clearly. <laughs> if that picture doesn't do anything for you, you talk to me after the service. I'll fill you in on the rest of the story. <laughs> Here in chapter 2, Paul presents one of the most incredible descriptions of the character of Jesus anywhere in Scripture. Look at what obedience cost him and where it led him. My grandparents who lived in Spencer County in southern Indiana had an old farmhouse, and the old farmhouse had a cellar under the main floor. You pulled up a, a door in the floor, sort of a trap door-like, and you walked down a very steep, uh, kind of a crude-made set of stairs into the cellar. Now, the cellar, like many other cellars in that day and time, had a, a dirt floor, and of course, it was where you stored the canned goods to keep them protected through the wintertime. It always had this musty, earthy smell. And as a kid, I was a little about apprehensive about going down that steep, narrow, wooden stairs into the cellar. It was like descending into a whole new world. In a much more profound and dramatic way, it must have been like that for Jesus coming to this earth, like stepping down a crude, narrow staircase into the cellar of the universe. Now, we can only relate to what we know as earth, okay? This is all we've got. This, we have no other place to compare to. So we can't imagine how, how huge of a step this was for Jesus. As God, all he had ever known and experienced was perfect. And he was God. He was not a descendant of God. He was not created by God. He was and is God. God in the flesh. And yet he became obedient to the plan from the very beginning of time. Jesus exchanged the perfect for the imperfect, the flawless for the flawed. And when you exchange U.S. currency in a foreign country, you got to make that transition well so you don't get taken and charged extra money for the exchange of that currency. But I'm telling you, there was no, there was no exchange when Jesus came. He just lost so much. Just think. His first sensation of coming here was the discomfort of the whole birth process. His first smell was dusty straw and manure. His first sound was that of perhaps a bleating sheep. His last sensation in this world was the pierce of Roman nails. His last smell was that of sour vinegar and blood mingled together with hot sweat. His last sound was the soft weeping at the foot of the cross. This was a huge step down. And in his obedience, he emptied himself. I find it utterly amazing that God once walked on this earth like we do. Jesus had to let go of some of that 
that godness. Uh, he didn't relinquish the divine nature, but he had to let go of some of that glory. And, and, and Paul writes, he says, being in very nature God, being in the very form of God. He did not consider the equality with God, something that he had to hold on to for self-promotion or protection. Uh, he, he let it all go. The word here for form is the word morphe. Morphe is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis, which means this total transformation. It was not just an outward or an appearance change, like you take an old run-down car, you paint it brand new, and you still got an old run-down car. It just looks nice on the outside. It's not that kind of a change. It was a total change. If Jesus had been born as a prince, an heir apparent to the mighty throne of the Roman Empire, it still would have been an unfathomable demotion. But he didn't even come as an earthly prince. He came as a lowly carpenter. He took on the essence, the morphe of a servant, one of us. He essentially became who we are. Some people want to offer the explanation that he only looked human on the outside, but inwardly he was completely divine that it was some clever disguise of God. Well, God has used clever disguises in his creation. The golden tortoise beetle is brightly colored gold, but can change to a dull orange with brown spots representing a ladybug when danger is near. Birds like to eat beetles, but they don't like to eat ladybugs because they have a very bitter taste. <clears throat> it's a great protection. The golden tortoise beetle changes his outward appearance, but he's still a tasty beetle on the inside. The birds don't know that. It, it's, a, it's a nice disguise, but it doesn't change who he is. The caterpillar, however, once it goes into the cocoon, becomes an all-new creature. It has changed completely, and that's the picture that we have of Jesus. A servant through and through. You remember what he said? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He could not. He could not have been our Savior were he not completely human. He could not have been a ransom for many. The end result of this total change was an act of humiliation. Now hear me carefully. God cannot be humbled by someone else. God cannot be humiliated by someone else. But God can humble himself. And that's what this passage tells us. That God made the choice to humble himself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I wish I could tell you this morning that we have the choice of being obedient or disobedient to death. I would choose the latter if that were the case. But we, we, we don't have a choice. Every, everybody that has drawn breath will eventually die. I don't obey death. I succumb to death. I, I don't even surrender to death. I just succumb to death. You will do the same. And we may do it fighting and kicking. But Jesus, he became obedient to death. Surrendered to death. The most devastating death of all time. He died in public disgrace. A criminal's death. Hanging exposed before a mocking world. And taking upon him all of the sin of all of humanity. And Paul points to this picture in Philippians 2. And he says, walk like this. So when we read this dramatic picture of who Jesus is. And his obedient character to the plan of God. Paul says, and this is the way we are to obey. You see, God, the incredible thing is that God never asks of us anything but what he hasn't already led the way. He doesn't ask us to obey, 
but what he hasn't already given us, a perfect example of obedience. So what, what kind of an understanding do we need of Bible obedience so that we can change our life to be a reflection of Jesus? Well, let me give you just a few things as we wind up our time together here. Obedience is, first of all, avoiding what God says is wrong. Now, most of us would say that's what obedience is. It's avoiding the wrong. Doesn't it require any explanation. It just takes a whole lot of implementation. But it also requires that we know what is right and wrong. And that comes from God's Word. You have to have a standard to know what's right and wrong. Everybody operates off of a standard. Not everybody offer, operates off the standard of God's word. Everybody operates off a standard. It, it may be the standard of their own feeling. Well, I just feel that that is wrong. Or I feel that that is right. And that becomes their standard. It's a very fickle standard. Some people operate off of the standard of what the majority chooses. Sometimes the majority is okay. Sometimes it's way off base. Not all that long ago, the majority believed that it was wrong for a man and woman to live together before marriage. Now the majority is gradually embracing living together as a test for marriage. Never mind the consequences of that choice. Never mind what God has to say about that choice. It's what the majority believes. And hey, who am I to go against the majority view? But the majority is not always right. The majority can be misled, manipulated, and coerced. At one time in history, the majority favored slavery. But we know that's not right. What? What if the majority comes to believe that euthanasia at a certain age will be better off for our culture? The older get, I'm sure I don't like that idea. And what if the majority concludes that our culture would be better off without Christianity? And that suddenly it outlaws the expression of our faith. I certainly wouldn't want that as a standard. When the majority determines a moral stance, we end up with shifting standards. But clothes lately? Clothes companies keep shifting the size. There's no longer a standard size anymore. You can order something from one place and order it from another place in the same size, and they fit totally different because the clothing industry has gotten the idea that if we expand the sizes over what they used to be, it'll make people feel better about our constant gaining weight as a culture. And so there's no longer a real dependable standard on clothes sizes. We need a standard that is the same this time and every time. We need a standard that will tell us the truth no matter the consequences. The scales is that kind of a standard. I don't like a scales. But every time I step on the scales, it doesn't tell me what I'm feeling. And it doesn't give me the majority view about my weight. It tells me how much I weigh. It just spells it right out there. No no softening of the edges or the corners. It just gives it to me straight. I don't like the scales. I empty every bit of air out of my lungs before I step onto the scales. I step on as lightly as I can. I stand on one foot. I stand on my toes. I shift my weight from side to side. It does not matter. The scales tells me the truth every time. And I don't like it. You know, the one thing I could do is avoid the standard. I could just never step on a scales and delude myself that I'm not too bad. That I'm not too many pounds overweight. 
You see, that's what happens when we avoid the standard. We are able to delude ourselves. Everybody needs a standard. And our standard has stood the test of time. God's Word gives us the truth first time and every time. And it gives us the same truth over and over again. It is not subject to the whims of a world or my feelings or the majority. But the Ten Commandments through the passing of time have been proven again and again as a genuine pattern for life. The Sermon on the Mount, if we would just follow it, makes for a wonderful culture. You see, we need a standard that does not change. We need to know right and wrong as God understands it. And here's another point to ponder. You don't have to understand everything in the Bible before you start obeying some of the Bible, the parts that we do understand. Theologian Thomas Akempis wrote, he said, delayed obedience is disobedience. You don't have to be able to explain the various theories of our Lord's return and end-time prophecy to know that you shouldn't lie, steal, be gluttonous, or gossipy. God's standard works. It's a faithful guide for our life. It's worth obeying, and it will never let you down. Here's something else. Obedience is consciously doing what is right. We oftentimes think, if I just avoid the wrong things, I'm good to go. No, that's only part of the equation. Learning to do the right things is just as important as avoiding the wrong things. It's easier to spell out the thou shalt not sometimes, but the go the second mile, take care of the hurting and hungry, visit those in prison, and be a good neighbor demands are just as important. Paul wrote to his friend and fellow Christian Philemon in that little book in the New Testament and asked him to accept and forgive Onesimus who had run away from home and become a Christian. And Paul wrote this in his letter to Philemon. He said, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. In other words, I'm going to ask you to do something, not avoid something. I'm going to ask you to do something and I'm confident you'll obey. And what I'm even more confident of is that you'll do more than I ask. I, I think God is looking for his people who will do exactly what he asks and above and beyond. You see, obedience is more about what you do than what you don't do. The two are the two sides of the same coin. Dr. John Getty was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands from 1848 until his death in 1872. He preached and served with spiritual passion for the natives of those islands who had lived without the knowledge of Christ. The impact of his godly influence is summarized in a memorial plaque where he preached so fervently in the South Pacific. The inscription reads like this. In memory of John Getty, missionary sent from Nova Scotia to Anicham for 24 years. When he landed in 1848, there were no Christians here. When he left in 1872, there were no heathens. You don't have to go down to the mission field to be obedient to God's commands. You can go downstairs and serve in the children's department because they need all the help and volunteers that we can get. And if you don't want to go downstairs, then go downtown and look for somebody that you can purposely, diligently, obediently reach out to in the name of Christ and help by making a difference. You see, obedience isn't just avoiding the wrongs. It's doing what is right. Walk where he would walk, downtown, 
downstairs, down here in your heart. Here's something else. Obedience doesn't eliminate fear or stress, but it does eliminate guilt. Being a Christian in many places around the world is, is pretty dangerous. Remember a few minutes ago when I said, what if our country ever decided Christianity needed to be outlawed? Well, there's a lot of places around the world where that has already happened. In the past year, the persecution of Christians has not only increased, but it has also spread to more corners of the globe with incidents occurring on every continent. The advocacy group, Open Doors USA, reported, it is appalling that Open Doors has to report that persecution has increased again in 2016, and we are still at the worst levels of persecution in modern times. The spread of persecution has gotten worse, now hitting nearly every continent in the world. There were 23 Christians killed in, in Mexico, specifically because of their faith. The Center for Studies of, on New Religions reported that nearly 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith last year. 90,000, and as many as 600 million Christians were prevented from practicing their faith through intimidation, forced conversions, bodily harm, and of course, death. Christians are the most persecuted group in the world. Do you realize that? Someday it may happen here. I pray not. But it is happening in places around the world. So there is stress and there is fear. But I'm here to tell you that I think stress and fear are easier to handle than guilt. I'd rather deal with stress and I'd rather deal with fear than to be hammered by the guilt of my disobedience. When Joshua took over for Moses in leading the Israelites uh, during the conquest of the promised land, he was filled with some stress and fear. But God gives him advice on guilt. In Joshua 1, 7, it says, be strong and very courageous. Now, now notice what he says next. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful for wherever you go. He says, don't be afraid. I got your back. But more than that, obey my commands. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. You just stick to the truth. Be obedient and you will find success. It's true. I can deal with stress. I can deal with fear if I'm not overwhelmed by the guilt of my disobedience. You see, when we obey, there's no guilt. Former Olympian and missionary Eric Lytle wrote, he said, one word stands out from all others as the key to knowing God and to having his peace and assurance in your life. It is obedience. Last thing, obedience is an expression of love. Every parent gets this. <laughs> when you... Give your children a chi uh, your, or your child a chore, and they readily do it. You see that as a response of love. Now, a rebellious child isn't loved less, but the environment of the relationship is certainly less. We love disobedient children, but the loving relationship is when a child obeys. God doesn't love us less when we disobey, but the relationship is broken when we are disobedient. Now this business for us men is tough. When we, took, when we read these passages, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, our mind goes to the emotional, to this gushy kind of thing, and I think, oh, Lord, how do I love you like that? And God knew that we men are that way, so he gave us a very clear-cut way to know how to express our love for him. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 
This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. 2 John chapter 1, verse 6, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Jesus said it simply, if you love me, do what I command. Guys, pretty simple. You want to know how you express your love for God? Do what he says. Follow, obey his commands. May make the difference between life and death. The 1986 Chernobyl disaster in northern Ukraine resulted in a nuclear fallout that was a record all around the world from the largest industrial accident ever to occur. The city of Chernobyl, which formerly was home to 55,000 people, is now largely abandoned. Do you know how it all happened? I understand that what research was done later has determined there were two electrical engineers in the control room who were playing around with the nuclear reactors and experimenting. The problem was that the computer systems had all these built-in safeguards and the warnings would blare out, stop, warning, stop, warning. You would think if you're dealing with a nuclear reactor and you got these warnings, you would stop and heed what the warnings said, but they didn't. Instead of heeding the warning, they turned off the warning and just kept going with the experiment until there was, no, there was no coming back. It all dissolved. They lost their lives. Thousands of others lost their lives. It was, a, it was a huge disaster, all because the warnings were ignored. The instructions and warnings in Scripture are just as clear. We ignore them at our peril. We obey them with our joy. Really, it's true. God is not some killjoy who's asked us to do things to destroy our joy, but to preserve it, to keep us guilt-free, to follow him, so that the world will see a family resemblance in us that reflects him. 